Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces Podcast, episode 242, um, with David Lowry. Uh, apologies for my slightly croaky voice at the moment. Um, I had my the last of my club nights of the year last night. So um, late nights and a lot of talking really loud leaves you a little croaky. Uh, but it's weirdly fitting, because in this episode, David Lowry had Pretty much completely lost his voice, but um, God bless him, he soldiered on, and uh, and we had a, a really good chat, a really good chat. This was the last podcast I recorded on a week where I had six podcasts in a week, and the other five were all people I kind of knew a bit, like I'd already met or already, I don't know, gigged with, done fe- festivals with, done some acting work with or whatever else so they're all ones I was more comfortable with and I'm a big fan of David's work I love as I mean we'll hear about it all in the podcast we got we really managed to to fit a lot in in a short amount of time as wicked but yeah so I was nervous about this one because he wasn't someone I'd met a fan of his work but you never know how that's going to be if there's going to be clicks it's it's similar I guess with last week's uh bonus episode with Matt Palmer where it just ended up as an education in the film industry. It was just, we really clicked and just chatted about the ins and outs of it all. Uh, and yeah, it was a, a similar one here. I was kind of nervous. You never know how it's going to flow. Also, this was one that was part of a press junket and they're always, you know, as the long time listeners will know, sometimes these podcasts are scheduled for an hour and we go on for several. So it's always the, those nerves are a, a, a press junket that time will be tight or that, um, you know, the the guest could be ex- exhausted from tons of podcasts. But but David was w- a wicked, despite having every reason to be <laughs> exhausted and unresponsive because he literally had no voice, poor dude. Um, but yeah, we really hit it off. It was a great chat. Weirdly, the film I wanted to talk about the most was, was Peter's Dr- a Dragon. Um, which is quite strange because I love, I love the ghost story. I like, you know, his new film, which as we speak now comes out next week. Uh, we talk about it, that, that a lot. So we'll get all into all that in the podcast. Um, is there anything I should, should mention before we jump in? We've had the last club night of the year, so I don't need to plug that with you anymore, but obviously speech development com for all your Christmas needs. Um, I've stocked up the signed, section in there so both of my books um are in this signed um there's a limited number of poetry and emotion which is my graphic novel of poetry so so there's only a few of them left and this is the last batch we're going to have there's a fair few of the distraction pieces podcast book left and there's a load that are signed and i've just had a load in because again we're on the last batch of that because both of these we've we've sold out essentially of the publication and all with proper publishers and that like not a self-published or anything so it's kind of mad that yeah we've gone through the whole whole print and reprint it's nuts so that's that that's cool but yeah available signed at the speech development at speech development records.com um there's my my edinburgh fringe dvd that is available for digital download or on dvd um it's worth a look man over christmas and that it's an hour of poetry i guess but i made a point 
of making sure I was in a venue that had a bar and that it was engaging and it didn't feel as if you come to watch a lecture. So um, it's worth a look over Christmas maybe if you get a chance. What else do I need to tell you? Obviously, patreon.com slash Scroobius It's getting mad over there. I love how people are just, we've built our own, li- own little community that doesn't have all the negative trappings of a wider s- social media. I mean, sp- speaking of social media, I recommend f- following David Lowry on uh, on Instagram. He's he's cool with the way he does stuff. He posts really just interesting stuff about his films, about film locations, and also he Instagram stories a lot of films he's gone to see and when he has film movie marathons at home. And you all know I'm a massive film nerd, so this just has had me buzzed and i i in in, in fact we've ch- chatted a bit since the podcast and i hit him up about um a film called the square which is going to be in my films of the year i'm i'm doing as ever i'll be doing a films of the year podcast um i think it'll be dropping in january it'll be the first one after the drunk cast over christmas so um yeah i hit him up about the square because it's one that has blown me away this year but i've not seen 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 many people talk about and and Dude absolutely schooled me because he had seen it and recommended Force Majeure, which is by the same director. It was the film we did before that. Um, And I watched that the other week and it blew me away because it's... This dude... Hang on, let me remember his name. Um, I'm reaching over to my Blu-ray. Yes, I buy things still. I like to have a physical copy. Ruben Osterland. He's got a really good way and... uh, it's weird because in the square he does it, but then there's also these two moments for me that are different from that. But he's got a really weird way of kind of like you know how everyone said that Seinfeld was the TV sh- a show where nothing happens. He he gets a lot from scenes just letting them play out slowly and naturally, and not this like there's there's tons of genuine tight humour and things like that, but not the kind of really tight scripted dialogue that we've become accustomed to in film and that's become the the norm in film i guess there's a far more natural flow to it and i guess that happens a lot in dramas but not so much in comedies or in i'm rambling on for ages now but in in kind of realist comedies it doesn't it doesn't happen so much in kind of character stuff and things like that they'll often improvise a lot but it feels like it, it doesn't happen so much in these more deadpan type things so I really like his style for that because it feels really n- natural. And you kind of, it sounds weird to say, but I found on both of them, I'm kind of smirking and amused constantly, but couldn't tell you any like strict laugh out loud type moments. It's kind of, and they're always quite weird and they're making a comment on a lot of different things. Anyway, I recommend the dude, but I'll be having my f- films of the year podcast at the end of the year. So you'll be excited to tune in for that, I'm sure. Um, to hear what else has made the list because the square is one of the ones that has made has made the list there's a few that i'm certain aren't going to be knocked off i'm going i i had a obviously i'm busy a lot but often if i'm busy and i'm on the road i'll i'll catch a film of the evening because i'm not that sociable a person i'm not a partier i don't drink much i'd rather go and see a film on my own so i watched a lot of films in the first two-thirds of the year and then I've had this period where I've had a lot of other things on that I've caught a decent amount still but not as many as I'd like so at the moment I'm really on a cinema binge every time I'm in London for a screening for 
you know, for, for, for future podcasts and stuff like that, I'm normally catching a couple of films before the screening. <laughs> so I'm going in for two warm-ups and then on to the main course. So, yeah, trust me, I'm doing my due, due diligence to tell you the very best films of the year, in my humblest of opinions. Um, anyway, I've rambled on more than enough. You're going to really in- enjoy this podcast. Um, apologies if the the slightly raspy voice is uncomfortable listening for you. I think it's probably. I think the apology might be that it's maybe too erotic for you to to enjoy because it's a it's a sexy raspy voice. And then apologies for forcing David to chat to me for 40 minutes with clearly no voice but yeah i think you're going to enjoy this i'll be back at the end to tell you what's to come i'll tell you now that next week i got boots riley on who's got another film who's also got a film that might be in my films of the year we shall see but yeah that's a great chat so um i'll tell you more of what's to come after this let's get into episode 242 of the distraction pieces podcast with david lowry As far as I can tell, it's really good. Um, I've started in the traditional podcast manner. I've started recording as we're going. I love um, it. I'm joined today by David Lowry, and you're struggling a little bit with your voice, right? Yeah, I've got a odd case of a rare case of laryngitis, so um, I'm, I might just let my timber slip down a little bit yeah, and get yeah. a little raspy here. It's fine. Own it. And uh, initially, it makes it sound as if the audio is glitching out slightly. So it's absolutely you no. Know, People assume it's an error on their end or a problem with their phone. Or they just assume I'm doing my Tom Waits impression. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm lucky that we've got 45 minutes here. So oh, I want to talk a luxury. about a yes. load of things. But obviously we're going to start with talking about um, the old man and the gun. And it's a tough one because your voice issues are making it even more prevalent. That I kind of f- finished watching this and thought a lot of me doesn't want to talk about this film because I don't think there's much more there's there's not much more perfect or, or not much more that can be added to, to the fact that it's a heist movie and the crew is Robert Redford Danny Glover and Tom Waits it's like tickets that's sold. kind of the best advert ever yeah. right as soon yeah. as and again I, on a lot of these films it's always a bit scary if I've got a podcast already booked in but in general I'll try not to watch a trailer beforehand or anything beforehand again I'm a fan of your work previously so I was, I was ready to yeah. have the podcast regardless I knew I'd enjoy it in some way but I loved going into it kind of blind and I mean it's a hell of a story did just speaking of Tom Waits and Danny Glover and Robert Redford did you have those guys in mind all along as you were were writing it because the characters seem so perfect there well Robert Redford brought the project to me so yeah this movie would not exist without him because it's a true story it's a true story that he it was it's based on a new yorker article about the real force tucker yeah and he'd been wanting to play this part for a long time wow and he saw something in my work that he liked and he brought the story to me and wow. here we are a couple of years later having made this movie and it's a, a real treat to have gotten to work with him a real honor in fact yeah. but it was definitely written for him. Like, yeah. I would not have made this movie without him. Yeah. With Tom and Danny, I just was thinking, 
which great actors, which great characters in film history would I want to see hanging out with Robert Redford? Because they spend most of the time just hanging out. You don't yeah. see them like robbing that many banks. You just see them hanging out. Well, that was exactly it. Was the fact that there's loads of just little interactions and stories told that I'm like, that story couldn't have been written without Tom Waits in mind or without Precisely. Danny Glover. It's like this has to have this. This isn't that he's playing this role. It's like you've got you found your person. Exactly. So those those characters that they play in real life, the Over the Hill Gang was like twenty or thirty guys. It yeah. was like a lot of hardened yeah. criminals. Yeah. In fabricating the story, yeah. I reduced it to two guys, and just wanted I wanted to find two actors who could hold their own against Bob, who brought their own sort of legacy with them on their shoulders yeah, and who I just wanted to hang out with. Yeah. And I wanted to wait until I cast those parts to really write them. So right. in the script, there was not okay. much to those characters. Teddy Green and John Waller were barely there. Yeah. There were many scenes where it was just the guys count their money. You know, yeah. that was the, that was the content of the scene. Yeah. And I knew that it would get filled out later on. So I had always admired Danny. Yeah. I loved him as an actor. I love what he does as a producer. He puts money into really challenging, yeah. adventurous international cinema. And I just wanted to talk to him about that, yeah. among other things. So we sent the script to him, and he really liked it and was excited to do it. I think he was really wanted to be part of you know Bob's crew. Yeah. And then Tom is someone I discovered at an early age through Bram Stoker's Dracula. Yeah. That was like one of my favorite movies growing up. And... He plays Renfield in that film. And yeah. I was just like, who's this crazy guy? He's amazing. And I remember getting the making of book, like the book about how they made the film. And I read about Tom Waits and discover that he's a musician. I'm like 10 years old at this point. Amazing. And they talk about how he serenaded Winona Ryder on set with Walting Matilda on her birthday. Oh, wow. And then I discover him playing Walting Matilda. You know, I discovered on the records and, yeah. and discover him as a musician and he just blows my mind. He's just someone who like, I'm like, who is this guy? It's just so incredible. So he's been a part of my life for so long. Such a, I've been such a fan of his. And of course from, from that role and his, his music, you then discover him in the Jim Jarmusch films. Yeah. And and then later on working with Terry Gilliam, you see him pop up in movies over the, and with Coppola and, and Rumblefish as well as Dracula and uh, the soundtrack for one from the heart. So I didn't think he would actually do the movie. Yeah. I didn't think that I had a shot in hell and actually working with him, but I just wanted to talk to him. Yeah. So we sent it to him and I was like, there's not much on the page, but if Tom likes this, like I'll get on the phone with him and we can figure out where we can take it from there. Yeah. And that's what happened. He he liked it. It turns out that he had seen Ain't Them Body Saints and like that. And he didn't want to do the movie, but he wanted to talk about it. Yeah. So we, we get on the phone. I love that. I love and that he's, he's like, I don't think I'm going to do this movie, but let's just talk. Yeah. And so we just talked. Over the course of that conversation, he told me several things which wound up in the script. Mm. He said, you know, he was thinking about going on tour. And he's like, I'm 67 years old. I got to figure out what my next score is going to be. And I was like, that's going in the script. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> And we ended that first conversation, you know, with him turning down the film. Yeah. But he left the door open. He was like, you know, I don't think I'm going to do it. But if you want to keep talking about it, let's keep talking about it. Yeah. And so we did. And a few phone calls later, his mind had miraculously changed and he wanted to do it. And he had so many wonderful ideas. Like he wanted his hair to be white. He wanted to look like Lee Marvin. He wanted to have a Jesus tattoo on his neck. Yeah. And he wanted to tell a story. And I asked him what story he had in mind. And he told me the story 
I don't want to spoil it for people, but there's a story he tells in the film that is a 100% autobiographical story from the life of Tom Waits. And it was just one of those things like the movie is better for that. There's no point to that as far as the plot is related. It doesn't affect the story of the film, but the movie would be lesser if it didn't have that story in it. Completely. And again, I think there's such an important gem there in the, the, even if it's a project you don't want to do is taking that phone call and talking about it. And it's particularly in our digital age, it's so easy to send an email and say, no, yeah, good. Completely. And I literally, I had an experience I like that that genuinely changed my life. That when I was doing music, a writer called Kelly Marcel, who at the time oh, yeah. I'd never heard of, yeah. but I'm now big, big friends with, emailed me saying, I'd love to have you in a film. This, this, this. I want to do a musical. And my initial reaction was, no, I'm really busy. I'm touring. And then I said, well, let's just meet. And I met, and that, and through her, I met Tom Hardy and Paddy Considine, yep. and these actors who have been my inspiration from day one. And that led to everything, whereas that could have been an easy, because the fact is, at that point, I was too busy. Right. So it wasn't going to happen. So that could have been such an easy no. But but doing that kind of, well, let's sit face to face and I'll tell you no. It opens I'll, the I'll door. I'll tell you no to yeah. yourself, yeah. to you, and it makes all the difference. It makes a huge difference. So how was that, though, having a Robert Redford s- select you? Because your body of work is so... V- varied it's kind of it made me think of obviously you've worked with um a casey affleck a lot and it made me think of of one of, of ben affleck's lines in jay and silent bob Stri- strike back which i made note of of the uh, what have i been telling you you you've you got to do the safe picture and then you do the art house picture and and again it kind of it feels like your career with with doing like a dit or f- following up ain't the yeah. body saints with a disney film is, uh, that's hilarious. It's mind blowing. There's that scene in Jane Silent Bob Strike Back where like Wes Craven is shooting Goodwill Hunting Two, Hunting Season. Yeah, yeah. And he's just counting his money off yeah, the side. Yeah, exactly. That's always been like a warning sign to me. But that's it. It's been beautiful that you've got that variation, but w- without the. I mean, they joke about it in there, but I'm sure Ben will concede that there's been films he's done that have been, as you said, yeah. for the money. Whereas you've managed to get the variation and still make them artistic. And Pete's Dragon is one of the films I want to talk about the most because. I love it. it. It's just wonderful. So it was one of those situations where I didn't think they would ever hire me. Yeah. So I just went in and pitched a version of the story that I would really literally want to make. Yeah. That really mattered to me. And they're like, great. Sounds good. We, you should write that. And so. <clears throat> That's so mad, particularly with w- w- what we know of the, the, how to put it delicately, the cautiousness of Disney, as we've seen with James Gunn and things like this. Certainly. Going from a film that's very. It walks a line. It's yeah. sexually aggressive. It's aggressive. There's 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 some dark there's shades. Some edginess there. to it. Yeah. Yeah. So to, to, to then go. Yeah. Have this. I mean, obviously, it might it, help that every great Disney film starts with the death of parents. Of course, I don't know yes. what their obsession is. Yes, there. exactly. It's the darkest obsession that we seem to ignore. But the Lion King. Oh, uh, they just, all have ev- ev- yeah. everything. Just yeah. you, you go through the lot. Bambi. Everything. It's like a narrative trope that you just have to, you know, sign on the dotted line. You're going to kill some parents when you I make a Disney movie. I will kill some parents, but um, I won't do any naughty tweets. Yeah. Um. It's really – everyone at Disney is – they love movies. Yeah. They have great taste in movies. And, and Sean Bailey, who runs a studio, is yes. on the board at Sundance. So he yeah. goes to Sundance every year and sees all of the new voices that are there. So he saw Ain't Them Body Saints – but the weird thing was that we were already working on Pete's Dragon before Ain't the Body Saints even premiered at Sundance. Oh, wow. There was a short film I made called Pioneer. Yeah. And the script for Ain't the Body Saints was out there. So people kind of like were aware of it as a script that was being made. So yeah. 
the producers of Pete's Dragon, they, the ones who were, had the property, they came to me and asked if I had a take on it. And I was like, sure, you guys are never going to hire me. So here's what I would do. They were like, just don't, don't think about the original film. Just use the title as a jumping off point and bring us something original. So I came up with a story with my partner, Toby Hobrooks, and, and we pitched it to them and they liked it. And then they saw anything Body Saints and luckily weren't scared away. They didn't get put off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And then they hired us to write it. And I think that they liked the fact that I wanted to do it. They yeah. liked the fact that after making this edgy adult romantic drama, I wanted to make a children's film and bring to it that same emotional veracity. Yeah. They wanted they wanted to know that I cared about it. Yeah. And and they could tell that from my work that I make movies that I care about, that I'm not going to just go in there and phone it in. And every step of the way, I was always like, are you sure you want me to make this movie? Are you sure you want the version <laughs> that I will make? Let me explain what this movie will feel like. Let me explain what it'll look like. Yeah. It'll be a Disney movie, but it'll be a certain type of Disney movie. Yeah. And they were on board every step of the way. I just kept waiting for the other shoe to drop and it never did. They wanted my version of Pete's Dragon. It sits in there. I mean, just weirdly of mentioning Kelly Marcel there, it sits in there with Saving Mr. Banks, where yeah. it's a Disney film, but it's it's heartbreaking. It's got that, that, that human element. And I needed to ask as well with that, uh, did you grow up with dogs? Have you got dogs? Because Elliot is just a big, stupid dog. He is a dragon, yeah. but it's just the thing that instantly... It caught me off guard at the start. I was like, oh, this isn't how I know dragons to be. It's like, this is... And I, I love just the the details of just him struggling to land at points and yes. stuff like that, just being this big, having all the intention, but still just being this innocent, f- floppy creature. No, I, I grew up with dogs, and now I have cats, and I'm yeah. a crazy cat person. Yeah. And my wife and I are thinking of getting a dog now, because like, we're both like, at that point in our lives, we're like, yeah, we should have a dog. Yeah, yeah. We should have a dog it's again. Dog time. And um, hopefully our cats won't hate us for it. Yeah. <laughs> We've fostered cats. We, like, we, animals, are, we're, my wife and I are both, ve- we've been vegan for, for decades at this point. And yeah. So we're very into animals. Yeah. And I wanted my love of animals to come through in that character. I wanted him to feel like a pet, you know, like the pet that you want to snuggle up with that will comfort you. And, yeah. and to, to really lean on that affection that humans and animals can have for one another. One of the great joys of developing that character was learning that the animators would not only film their own pets for reference, but spend a lot of time just watching funny animal videos on YouTube. Amazing. So and that's that, work. And that's beautiful. It's that's what, what you an amazing to way work. to spend yeah. the day. Just yeah. like look, looking at animal behavior on YouTube. Yeah. So that crash landing, I can look at the movie now and just tell you what, individual scenes were based on the crash landing was this seagull that just couldn't quite stick his landing amazing when he rolls over in his cave that's my cat rolling over i could show you a video of that happening right now he does that all the time and obviously like when he like shakes himself off in the when he's running through the water that's definitely our visual effects supervisor eric's dog doing that and i love it every there's so much personal detail in that animation that we just everyone is pouring their own affection for their own pets into the performance and it comes through i mean you just see all the animators loved that character because he was all of their pets and that's the key to great cinema right is finding these stories that might be fanciful or unimaginable and then you as a writer or director finding the bits of you in there 
the actors again. I think it's it's only since I've started going into acting and reading tons of books on it and nerding out. I'm an obsessive yeah. kind of guy. I'm a film fan anyway, but in this area, it's realizing that it's not you know tr- transformation is great, but what gets that transformation across is finding what's y- you in there, what w- the you in that character Completely. to make it real, to make it human, rather than just I'm being over the top and I've transformed into this person. So that that, that must be great to get that with the people you're working with. Uh, with everyone to bring a film to life it completely is i mean that's one of the things i always look for when i start writing it is like how can i make this autobiographical yeah and it never needs to be literally autobiographical but i need to find that thing that makes it connect to me yeah and i always encourage everyone i'm working with to do the same i want everyone to find the ways in which our mutual efforts will resound within our own lives and and that we can draw from our own lives to to create something together like that's yeah. something that's really important to me yeah it's 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 it's, it's something i encountered a lot in, in in my music career was i'd have people ask me a lot because it was kind of spoken word and hip-hop and it was all quite often quite dark and personal and people would ask how you find the courage to be so personal i'd, I'd have to admit it's like it's all fiction it's drawing from true experiences yes. but then writing fiction and then that allows people to go Wow. They assume. You've opened yeah, your heart there. Exactly. They, they feel you comfort that. to open your heart as well, I guess. Because you're, so because it it's not a hundred, it's not completely literal. Yeah. So you feel like you're not exposing yourself to the world. Yeah. And yet at the same time, you're giving the world a very clear version of your own heart. Yeah. And of your truth. And yeah. And of what, of what it is that compels you to do what you do. Completely. So, so to, to, to get back to, um, Old Man and Gun, um, how was it? To be part of that with a Robert Redford, did you know at the time? But because he said now that this is yeah. his, his 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 swan song, and it could not be a more perfect swan song. I was watching it the whole time, thinking no one else could play that role. I'm a big fan of Robert Redford. I don't think he's had any role he's played better. You know, there's pro- there's probably some that that are on a par. It's ha- it's hard to yeah, say when yeah. I've only just seen it. It's hard to put it in the in in the realms of history. But it's just it's perfect because it's a character that. For the audience to go along with it, it relies one hundred percent on charm. Mm-hmm. Um, because the fact is, again, I've like, we've not really said what it is. It's 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 an older man who's who, who's robbed banks his whole life and yep. escaped from prison, and he's got a gang of older men. Um, and the fact is that he's he's a criminal, and 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 you know that's there's probably people getting scared. There's mm-hmm. all these other things, but Hurt, yeah, he he hurts people's feelings left and right in this movie. But he's played as and written as as. The, the 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 word that came to mind was a rascal. Yes. It is it's like it's that the charming rogue. cheeky boy. Yeah. And it's like oh he happens to be robbing banks and doing these dark things but it's l- l- lovable all the way and his interaction with Sissy Sissy Spacer is just it's just the most warm and again all of it it's another thing it just none of it feels written. It all feels like Obviously, knowing how films work, it has to be. But it feels like you've gone, right, we'll get up one morning and let's start making this story because it feels so natural and human. From the very beginning, Bob wanted it to be a spiritual successor to some of his earlier, you know, the, the movies that made him famous. Yeah. Where he played an actual outlaw. Yeah. So that was always... lines re- 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 referencing that. I'm yes. not going to ruin it because it's so good to watch in there. Yeah, totally. A line or two in there that you're like, oh, this is, yeah. And so that was always <laughs> on my mind. So I always knew that, I always knew that it would be a bookend of sorts. That yeah. we were, you know, kind of providing the follow-up to Butch Cassidy that Butch Cassidy never had. Yeah, yeah. 
so that was on my mind, and I, but I never, you know, I never thought of it as his last movie or like a swan song yeah. until a few months before we started shooting, he did an interview in which he said he was going to retire after he, after we wrapped Principal Photography. Wow. Yeah, and that just sort of like landed on me all of a sudden. My phone lit up, and people were like, "Did you know about this?" And I was like, "No, I had no idea." We never pressure, talked about right? it. The pressure then. And so suddenly, I had this pressure. Yeah. That I might be making the final Robert Redford movie. And after a few days of stressing about that, I just thought, I'm not going to think about that at all. I just had yeah. to cast it out of my mind because otherwise it would infect everything we did with mm. a sense of finality. And one of the beautiful things about this movie is that in spite of feeling like a bookend, it also is got a lot of a youthful spirit to it. Yeah. I really wanted Bob and Sissy to play their parts as if they were teenagers. I didn't want them to be commenting on how old they are or how much time they've got left or being too, you know, wistful and reminiscent about the good old days. I wanted them to be looking to the future. Yeah. And it's played like a teenage romance. Exactly. Exactly. They are the age they are. There's yeah. no getting around that. So we don't need to talk about it. Yeah. Had I gone into this movie thinking every day, this is Robert Redford's last movie, I would have shot it that way. Yeah. Every time he picks up the phone, I'd be like, this is the last time we're going to shoot Robert Redford at a payphone in a movie. Yeah, and yeah. that would have been heavy. Yeah, We wanted the movie to be light on its feet. So we just never thought about it. By the time we'd finished shooting it, I'd forgotten that he'd said it. Yeah, And then a few weeks before we started doing press for the movie, he started talking about it again. And then, you know, it works its way out into the press and becomes part of the story of the film. And at that point, the weight of that hit me. And looking at the movie in those final weeks of, you know, I guess it was like July and August as we were starting to ramp up to do press and we were doing a couple of long lead interviews and he would mention it. I started to look at the movie with that in mind yeah. and it became more emotional. It yeah. went from being yeah, yeah, a very yeah. rollicking, fun-loving, high-spirited romp to being something that really did feel like a swan song. And I'm glad that that's coming to the movie now that we didn't bake that into it yeah completely from the get go because it's n it's a nice note for the movie to have but we're not overdoing it i i couldn't agree more and it's something i hadn't realized was m missing from it and for better there's there, there's been loads of films that are the older guys on the road again yeah. vegas or whatever yep, else yep. and this again it's not it's never addressed that they're old, other than in the fact that that's in the description yes. of the person who's robbing the bank or that. It's never played as, oh, it's these old boys. No. It's just, yeah, it's it's, it's some lads. It's, it's some like, mates. It's so refreshing to not talk about that. And yeah. that was something we never, like, I've Even never said. Even though it's key to the story. <laughs> it's key to the so story. It's hugely bold to ignore it, essentially. The main, the main point is kind of ignored. You just, you just get it. It's yeah. just, you see them, you see that when Bob walks across a room, he's got a little hitching his gate now because he's a, a, the age he is you don't have to have him complaining about it yeah. it's just part of who he is now and it's it's all the acknowledgement is there on screen yeah it's it's, it's a fascinating one because it's one of the first films that i feel the the prior knowledge of the actors um in inform something of the characters oh, I've, for sure. I've been kind of thinking a lot recently that a lot of my favorites or a lot of the biggest tv shows i think one of the reasons they're so good is that they often have unknown actors in so game of thrones yep. and, and so many other things it was their first gig so yeah. you only know them as that character and there is something that's taken away when you know al pacino if you're casting al pacino it's because you want al pacino so it's kind of there's there's a there's a weight there that takes it out of the 
the story you, you, yes. you're losing yourself in. And this is a rare time where it adds to it because it's, it's completely right. Your your knowledge of how old they are or the awareness of their years is that you know them from things from years ago. You know a, a lethal weapon. Yes. You know Tom Waits yep. from, as said, Dead Man, all the Jim Jarmusch stuff and just his music. Yeah. So it doesn't need to be said. It's kind of, yeah, well, here – it's these older guys, remember? You've I love, got history. I love leaning into the legacy of yeah. these guys, yeah. of all of these actors, and leaning into their history. And rather than like casting them in parts that where they had to set those past incarnations of themselves aside, yeah. I was like, let's embrace it. You yeah. know, with Tom, maybe you're the older version of your character from Down by Law. Yeah. You know, yeah, even yeah, though yeah, they're yeah, yeah, yeah. different eras that the movies are set in, like, let's embrace that. Let's let yeah. this build on that. And with Redford, certainly, I was like, we're never for a moment going to forget, you know, who you are when we're watching this movie. So rather than, like, go overboard trying to make you into a character that you'll never completely be anyway, let's just embrace the Robert Redford of it all. Yeah. And let that do a lot of our heavy lifting. Yeah, I love that. Um, It also, it it, it made me think at points of of Harvey, uh, which is my favorite film of all time, Jimmy Stewart. Yeah. Um, and it's one that I feel has always been needing a remake because it feels so, so prevalent today with overdiagnosis of stuff and things like that. But the thing that it, it struck me with this was, and again, it's not giving away too much, but when Robert Redford is committing these robberies, the defining feature is he's happy. Yes. And there's a brief moment in the film where he's not, and he's sad. He's a different man. He's a changed man. And then you start to look at well and again this isn't this is a weird justification it's like well these banks are insured they've got coverage no one's slope. actually yeah. being hurt it's a really it's slippery, slippery slope, slope. <laughs> but it is that kind of no one all, all the people have in this version of the story all the people who've been robbed are saying yeah he kind of seemed like they don't seem scarred by it so it's one of them we like well he's just happy that way and 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 harvey essentially is about a guy who's 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 mentally ill in some way but when they start to fix him He's miserable. He it's like, well, just let him be who he is. Yeah. Let him be delusional or whatever else. Just allow that. It's it doesn't need fixing if it's not doing anyone any harm. Exactly. And it it, it felt like elements of that it's in a, this story. It's you know? a culturally gray area to yeah. play with because I cannot condone what he does. Of course, of course. But I admire it, and I also, I mean, the reason again, not to spoil anything, but the reason why. You know, the cop in the movie does what he does is because I didn't want to see Forrest Tucker get caught. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would have been sad to me. It would have been disappointing. (laughs) And he should have been caught. Yes, his daughter is right when she says he needs to be locked up. But at the same time, does he? I mean, I really, like, I don't want to see him get caught. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Particularly at that point in his life and all of this kind of thing. Yeah, it's like, uh, like, what's the worst that could happen? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So um, uh, before we move on... uh, from this film um what is it about heist movies that is just exciting and engaging and it um american animals came out this oh, year yeah. and it was another movie that i really liked because it was a heist movie that was essentially there is money involved but it was essentially based around the reason for doing the heist is because it seems like an exciting thing to yeah. do and that's the the vibe of of, the of, of Robert, a redford's character and this is that he just enjoys it in fact even yeah he states that at different points he's like it's it's fun. There's, there's like two things. Yeah. One is that on a cultural level, we like seeing an individual go up against an institution. Yeah. yeah. And so when you see someone rob a bank, that is 
the embodiment of, especially in America, I feel like, where the entire country came from, you know, a group of individuals going up against a massive institution, yeah. which is where we are now, yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. going up against the throne. And it's so prevalent in the U.S., that sense of like the outlaw mentality. And that's why yeah. you see kids with Scarface posters on the yeah, wall. Yeah, of course. We should not, you know, put Tony Montana on a pedestal, but we do because he's an outlaw who is one guy going up against something. Yeah. And so there's something very appealing about that. The other thing is there's so there's so much pleasure to be had in watching professionals execute a plan with proficiency. Yeah. When you see people who know what they're doing, planning something and then executing that plan, it is just delightful and delicious and exciting and yeah. thrilling. And then, of course, sometimes those plans go wrong and that is when it gets suspenseful and tragic and, and breathtaking. But there's so much satisfaction to be had in watching people who are good at what they do doing something that they love doing. Yeah. And the heist film gives us all of that. So I think that's why it's been one of the, you know, the great genres in cinema is because you're getting to participate in all of those things at once. How much restraint did it take to not go too deep into the actual act of the heist? Again, it's a heist movie that's not about the heist. We've, yeah. got, we've got films like Rafifi that have nailed the heist scene and, and things like that. And that can often be the almost a distracting factor because you're like oh how can we do this different how can we do this and exactly this film it's a heist movie but the heist is a tiny part of it it's the relationships the characters and the outlook it wasn't that hard because i wrote i'd write these heist sequences i'd write these big bang robbery sequences and then i'd go look at something like rafifi and be like oh man it was better <laughs> yeah. like i can't i can't top yeah. that so rather than trying to top it i was like let's just sidestep it let's just yeah. take the 20 minutes that we would have spent on a big heist set piece and focus on something else and let that be what gives this movie its distinct character. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think uh, one of the things I love about your approach to writing and directing, it's it's an interesting one because, uh, and not to turn this into um, a psychiatrist uh, yeah. couch thing, but it, it feels like because you started so young, you directed your first film at like 19, right? Or I mean, technically even younger, but that was like the first, my first attempt at making a feature was when I was 19. And then there was a lot of, sh of shorts, shorts in between. Yeah. And then again, I I had assumed Ain't There Body Saints was your debut. It wasn't until I looked back, I was like, all right, you've been doing this a long time. But it feels like it gives you a confidence and comfort in in what you're doing. And I mean, we spoke of the the cop in, in Old Man and the Gun is, is Casey Affleck. He's also, um, oh, he's been in a couple of them, yeah, a, yeah. a few of them, but he's also in, in Ghost Story. And Ghost Story was one that it blew me away. Number one, just artistically, I enjoyed it as a film, but number two, as someone who writes scripts and stuff as well, to have the confidence. I mean, you must have turned in like a 20 page script for that feature because there's so yeah. much that's just a really simple, easy one to say. Um, she, she eats the pie. It's literally that. Literally, is it? it and was, then, and then it's a ten minute scene or something like that. The ghost walks, yeah. walks through the house. Exactly. You know, it's, it, it's like that must have been such a. And again, I'm referencing for some reason Kelly Marcel a lot. But when I was asking her advice on writing scripts, she was like, "Read good scripts. Don't go and read the books that tell you how to write yeah. scripts because they'll restrict you. And you know, it's good to learn these things, but they'll restrict you. Read scripts that you like, and then." just just right and it feels like that kind of confidence is in in your approach because yeah that's a short script on paper it, it was it was it was about 30 pages yeah and 
the movie's not that different from the script. It's not like it changed a lot. Yeah. It was all pretty much there on paper, but there wasn't that much there. Yeah. It was definitely the scariest movie I've ever made. Like, I felt like I was jumping off a cliff every single day because we just, it's so high concept. Yeah. The idea that we're going to follow this guy in a bedsheet for 90 minutes and become emotionally connected to his journey, it could have gone horribly awry. Yeah. And yeah. there were versions of it that we shot that did not work. And yeah. so every day it was just like everyone was on set working so hard to make this thing work and it might fail miserably. And I was just terrified. But yeah. I did have like this confidence that there was at the core of this idea something worth pursuing. And we we just had to keep going until we made it work. And yeah. that's what we did. It's something that I don't know if I could have made that movie 10 years ago. I yeah. probably I couldn't have. Yeah, It would have been a different movie anyway. I'm not who I was 10 years ago. It definitely came at the right point in my life, having just made Pete's Dragon, getting ready to make Old Man the Gun, jumping into that was a cleansing experience because yeah. I really got to trust myself as a filmmaker. When I when I talk about writing screenplays, I really think of writing them. I don't think about them as a writer. I think about them as a director. Yeah. And writing them is the first step in directing. Yeah. I'm directing on paper. Yeah, yeah. And with that one, it really... I didn't give myself that much paper to work with before I was on set making the <laughs> yeah. film. And so it really was a process of figuring out what the movie was while we were making it. Yeah. We did have a script to go on, but like you said, it's not a lot. If you have a scene where it just says Rooney Mar eats a pie, it could be shot a number of different ways yeah. and figuring out the right way for the movie that I wanted to make was, was a challenge. And from a production perspective, a, a, a line producer point of view and things like it must have been tough because like well how long do they need for this yes one exactly yeah, yeah is this the whole of today or is this the first 10 minutes of today it, like, it would change right. like there were days where i was like you know that thing we were gonna shoot today we're not shooting anymore we're gonna focus on this instead because <laughs> yeah. it's more important um so was working with casey key in 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 that one i mean number one i need to ask was he always under the sheet or is that or would you rather not well i'm no that? i'm very um, I don't think it changes the movie yeah. to say that he wasn't always under it. Mm. In figuring out what the movie was, yeah. we had to do a lot of reshooting. Yeah. So we shot him under the sheet for a big chunk of it, and then we stopped production to kind of edit. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And figure out like what else we needed. Yeah. You know, there's a. I'm not. I think it's safe to say at this point that the house gets knocked down. Yeah. And we're like, let's save that. Let's not shoot that until we have the rest of the movie cut together. Wow. In case yeah. we need to go back and shoot more. Yeah. And it turned out that we did. And that's fascinating. And so the stuff that we went back and shot, he wasn't available because he was doing the Manchester by the Sea yeah. promotional tour at that point. And our art director, who had helped put the sheet together and knew it very well, he um, was the same height and build as Casey, and he Perfect. he stepped up and and so. He's credited in the movie as Ghost Stage 2 because at Stage 2 of the yeah. production, he took over. Amazing. And um, you can't tell. Like, yeah, There's course. times where it's like, it's Casey, and then the reverse shot is David Pink wearing a yeah. sheet, and you can't yeah. tell. But it was necessary for us to sort of figure out the language of how that ghost worked, and it just took time, and part of that time involved reshoots. But it was necessary to have him there at the beginning so that we attach ourselves to him as an actor that we recognize, yeah. as a character that we can empathize with, so that when that trans transition occurs, when you know the sheet gets put over his face and then he sits up, yeah. we accept him as a character rather than just a symbol. Yeah, yeah, and that made a huge difference. And it feels like 
it it felt like the perfect um, actor to work on a project. I like this because I'm sure he did a film with Gus Van Sant in a desert. Yeah, Jerry. That, that, that again, it's like one of my favorite. I'd, movies. I'd say that's two two sheets of yep. a script. It's yeah. literally like, and, yeah. and again, it blew me away because it felt similar to the way I always I use it as an example on these things. But if you're watching a film with subtitles. 10 minutes in, you forget you're reading. Yes. It just becomes a natural thing. And when you thing. think about the film later, you think about it in and, your own language. And that was it with Jerry. You're like, there's barely any dialogue, yet a few minutes in, you're just like, oh, this is how films work. Yep. And it's, it, it goes, and it's similar with a ghost story. It's like, oh, this is... Oh, for sure. The I mean, Jerry was a big deal to me. Yeah. Like, that movie really... It opened my eyes to a lot of cinema that I hadn't been aware of, like Gus Van Sant's influences on yeah. that movie, like Bellatar, I had yeah. not seen yet, but that was a gateway for me. Yeah. And it also was the movie that really made me excited about Casey. And, you know, I wanted to work with, I I was a fan of him, of his, you know, he's in all the Kevin Smith movies and he's in um, To Die For. And I'd been aware of him, but that was the movie that made me a fan of his. Mumbling away in Goodwill Hunting. Exactly. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Incomprehensibly. Yeah. So, so, I mean, you spoke about a reshoots and that makes perfect sense because if ever there was a film that was going to, that you were going to know what you'd got in the edit, it's it it's that, a ghost yeah. story, and particularly, I'd say even the score. The score, a film with such little dialogue, the score is telling so much of the story. So, how was that to kind of to wrap principal photography and know you're probably about a quarter of a way through the, essentially the, directing the film because there's was, so much still to direct. It was scary. It was like as fun as it was to make the movie. It was really hard. Yeah, you know, it was really a challenge, and to wrap the first chunk of it and think like we're not done yet we're all coming back we're all coming back to this house and we're gonna keep shooting it was daunting and i remember showing the first assembly to daniel hart my composer and i was like what do you think like what do you think what do you make of this yeah and he's like i don't know yet (laughs) it was it was a lot of head scratching early on as we just tried to figure out what the movie was and it's again it's surprising to me to to look at the script and it's not that different. You know, the, the movie is the script. It was yeah. all there on the page, but it just, we went on a lot of tangents. We took a lot of detours and we just had to figure out what that movie, what that script looked like when it was brought to life. Yeah. And it was a really invasive creative process. We were just like, we we're like, here's what's on the page. Here's what we're seeing. How do we reconcile these two things? What is it that we actually are looking for when we have this one line, in the script that says the ghost walks through the house? What, yeah. What what was I thinking when I wrote that? What does the emotional quality need to be? So as we as things settled down, as they always do, and we we kept shooting, and and as the film defined itself for us, I think I got an idea of where the music needed to be in the movie, and yeah. and sort of what the quality needed to be. But one of the great things about working with Daniel is he scored all of my movies. Right, I was and, going to ask that because it seems like such a key relationship yeah. in your works because it is the real i feel each film feels feels so different but it's partly because of the score the scores are so different in each film to hear you work with the same person would make people who haven't seen them assume there's going to be a similarity there's not, not. there's such jarring differences and but he he has an innate ability to understand what the movie needs yeah and so with each film we make i feel like we talk about it less yeah and i just will show him the movie I'll give him a couple ideas that I might have in mind, but he does all his own spotting. Like we don't do it. We don't go through the movie and say, okay, we need music here, 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 and here. Yeah. I just trust him to spot it and he'll give me music. And 
sometimes the music needs to move around. Sometimes I decide we don't need music in a certain place. But nonetheless, within like, you know, 98% of the time, what he gives me right out the gate is what the movie needs to sound like. He writes music that sounds the way the films look and feel. It's It's an amazing gift when you have a collaborator who can tap into whatever it is you're working on so thoroughly that you don't actually need to talk to them about it. And when you find people like that, you just hold on tight. I was going to say, I I think it's why people, you see people work with the same actors or same teams along and people will start to signify as as nepotism or who you know, whatever it's like. No, if you find someone who you've got that artistic shorthand with that you just, you get it, you're on the same page, then that's something that's going to be hard to walk away from, right? You're not going to want to... It's, go in another direction. Or if you want to go in another direction, it's with them. It's with them. You want to yes, go together. Exactly. Off you're, this like, you're like, let's grow together as yeah. people on this journey. Yeah. It's that shorthand is invaluable. Yeah. Because if you when you first get to know someone and you're first working with them, you know, most of what you're doing is convincing them to trust you. Yeah. You're like trying to find that trust. And so if that trust is already there, it gives you so much more room to create. Yeah. You don't have to like spend time building something. That that structure is already there, and you can just keep expanding it. Yeah, and and it, as I said, it really felt on on a ghost story. It really felt like a really important one to yeah, because m- music's t- told s- so much, and it was key to the way I love in the film in general the way time passes in yeah. it because it's really it's 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 fluid. It's not your regular linear passing yes. of time. And I think it's a fascinating thing because I always remember I'm a, I'm a big fan of Prince and I always remember Prince saying that he doesn't celebrate birthdays because he's like, if you celebrate birthdays, then that's this mark all the way along that, that, that we're counting dates r- yeah. r- rather than moments. The chronology and, is and, just laid in stone. Yeah, and a ghost story is a series of moments. It's not a series of dates and that's... That sh- should be how we approach life and look at life, right? Our existence, marking it by the moments and the exciting highs and lows rather than, oh, it's that date again. I'm yes. now one year older. Precisely. My like my birthday is never the most important day of the year. Yeah. Like I'm yeah. Never, I don't remember any of them. They're not that important. I really like to think of time as a dimension that we have not cracked yet. Yeah. That it's something that we process in a linear form because we need to as human beings. Exactly. We understand it the way we need to understand it. it's not actually that. Yeah. And so in in subjecting myself to that linear structure, I still want to play with it as much as I can and and push it beyond that form. A ghost story was a chance to do that very actively, very literally, to like actually let the linear form of time break while still following it. Like the movie... Starts at one point, ends at another. But within those two confines, I wanted time to become as elastic as I could. Yeah. And and again, to define it not by the normal benchmarks of progress, but by the emotional um, peaks and valleys with which we actually do chart our lives. Yeah. I remember falling in love for the first time. I remember my first heartbreak. I don't remember getting my driver's license. You know, things like that. Yeah, those yeah. Those things that, that signify advancement culturally don't matter as much as those signifiers that affect our hearts and our souls completely so i mean i'll wrap things up now by simply asking and again this is always the most uh, this feels like the most fascinating question for you specifically of what's next because of this variation of different things as i I stated with the ben affleck quote at the start it was so helpful 
that I had already made Old Man and the Gun by the time a ghost story came out. Yeah. Like we shot oh, the movie. Oh, really? I didn't even realize We shot that. the movie. Like it premiered at Sundance. Because you're still touring Ghost Story as well, right? I think I'm sure I saw on Instagram or something that you were doing. Yeah, the Japanese press recently. So and it's opening in Japanese or in Japan in November. Yeah. So there's not a lot of subtitling that needs to be done. So it's an easy transition. It's perfect. (laughs) So basically, Ghost Story. We finish Pete's Dragon. We shoot a Ghost Story. Yeah. Pete's Dragon opens. Then we finish a Ghost Story. We finish post production on Ghost Story. Ghost Story premieres at Sundance. We go shoot Old Man the Gun. Then I move into the release of a ghost story wow. while posting Old Man the Gun. And now Old Man the Gun's coming out. So, yeah. And we're still talking about a ghost story. So yeah, it's all yeah, yeah, blended yeah. together. But it was so helpful for me to have made the Old Man the Gun already because I didn't, as we talked earlier, I didn't expect a ghost story to connect the way that it did. Yeah. It really landed in a way that I had not anticipated. And I think that if I hadn't already made my next film... I would have been petrified. I wouldn't yeah. have known how to follow up a ghost story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, yeah. I would have just felt this pressure of expectation. And so it was really helpful that Old Man the Gun was already in the can. Yeah. And I could be like, I've already made my next film. It's completely it's different. Yeah. And I can't wait for you all to see it. I'm not going to ruin anything <laughs> by this weird film that you might not get. Again, it turns out people did get it. But yeah. I've already got this. I can prove exactly, myself here. Exactly. I can, make actual, I can make normal films too. And so <laughs> now I don't, I'm not, my next film has not been shot yet, but yeah. we're in prep or in the early stages of prep. And it will, you know, it'll be its own thing. It's a, yeah. it's something I haven't done before. It's a genre I haven't tapped into, but I think it'll feel very much of a piece with the rest of my movies. And, you know, should it actually come to pass, knocking on wood here, I think uh, I think people will be very excited about it. But it will also be a surprising left turn, which is always what I want to do. I always want to yeah. not I don't want to surprise people for the sake of surprising people i just want to challenge myself with every movie i make and to to explore new territory while also doing the things that i like to do as a director that's perfect i can't wait well thank you very much for your time particularly with your your struggling voice yes i hope it was tolerable to listen to perfect There we go. That was episode 242 of the Distraction Piece podcast with David Lara. I, I really enjoyed that conversation and it really, it it jumped out. I've, I've had some great conversations this year with the directors and it made me think of when I had Desiree Akhavan on and she spoke of kind of feeling that the role of a director is isn't it doesn't simply take place or it isn't simply about stamping your imprint on set um it's about creating a set where you can effectively at times not have any imprint you know that you can stand back and let the amazing team you've put together and the environment that you've built for this stuff to go on in you can almost sit back and allow it to play out if you didn't catch the Desiree Akhavan one there's a great bit where she talks about um, a scene in the education of Cameron Post uh, the miseducation of Cameron Post which which came out this year as well and there's a scene in the back of a car that she talks about and it's really it's beautiful the way she puts it Um, and yeah her role 
as a director that she almost felt g- g- guilty because she was like just kind of left everyone to it. She she again, it's about setting that scene. I like to think of it as as like Miles Miles Davis. Um, everyone's heard of Miles, um, and you could argue, well, there's whole bands of amazing um, musicians and all of his albums, but it was Miles that kind of put that situation together and and set that scene to allow this all to to play out and be amazing and beautiful so that's how i think it's or it's it's something i i i admire as a directorial uh trait and if i ever ended up in that direction i think that's what i'd be trying to aim towards but i've no plans to at the moment in case any of you are wondering and think that that's a sole hint i'm not i'm writing tons of scripts at the moment and i'm getting better and better at acting and l- burying myself in that absolute now lifelong obsession. So that's all the plan, but um, no immediate plans for, for direction, but you know, always on the cards. Anyway, I'm rambling at the end of a podcast again. I rambled at the end of last week's bonus podcast. I did a ramble intentionally strange, but I think it's testament to my, the development of my acting skills that I genuinely got, several messages from people asking if I was okay because of this (laughs) insane ramble so anyway I won't repeat it this time I'll leave you all to it but next week I've got Boots Riley the week after that I've got the amazing Russell Kane and then after that it's drunk cast time ladies and gentlemen we are recording here the weekend after next I think and then yeah we are all on so it's going to be drunk drunk cast being released over christmas and new year then back with uh probably my films of the year podcast and then i'm recording some great guests at the moment there's there's one guest that has been floated in front of me in theory it's not confirmed yet but instantly i was like yeah i'd really like that guest on my podcast that'll be an amazing episode so please make that happen so yeah some good ones to come i promise you that um, but until then, I will see you all next week with Boots Riley. And go and check out The Old Man and the Gun um, in cinemas uh, a week on Friday. So what's that? This, December 7th, I think, around that time. You've got Google in that. Go and give it a look. Um, I will talk to you all soon. Ta-ta.